my name is Lucas. Welcome to Bayview Glen. I'm lead pastor here. Uh, glad to have you here with us this morning. And, and as uh, Dave has set up for us and Scott has even set up for us this morning, we're, we're talking about doubt this morning. We're talking about doubt. And, and we've been tracking through this series called Questions. And each week we've let a, a, a different question kind of guide our entire time together. We kicked off on Easter Sunday with this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we said that Jesus is the Son of God sent to redeem and rescue the world. And so if we want to deal with who Jesus is, we've got to deal with those claims. We can't adjust it and revise it to make it more comfortable for us. That's, that's who Jesus is, who he claimed to be. And then second week, we talked about what it means to be a Christian. We asked this question, what does that mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world without Jesus? Now that he is not on the planet anymore, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? And we talked about a change of mind and a change of identity. Uh, week three, we, we asked this question, is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds? Remember that one? Is Christianity really as crazy as it sounds? And we said that if you're listening to the discourse and the dialogue below the line between angry atheists and crazy Christians, then Christianity will certainly sound crazy. It will sound combative and hyperbolic, and people don't have respectful, honest, openly open discourse below the line. But above the line, where Jesus lives... Uh, that's, that's respectful, open, intellectually honest dialogue and discourse. And above the line, we find that Christianity is a reasoned faith. And it's, and it's not nearly as crazy as it sounds. In fact, it's not crazy as, at all. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. It's fantastic. But it's not unreasonable. And then uh, last week, we talked about this. If I have a past... If I have a past, can I still become a Christian? We all have a past. None of us are really proud of our past, or at least very few of us are proud of our past. And we asked that question, if I've got a past, can I still become a Christian? And we said this, that a past really isn't preventative in terms of things of faith. A past is really a prerequisite for, for coming to Christ in repentance and faith. Understanding that I've done some things, said some things, been some things, took some attitudes, dated some people, smoked some stuff, whatever it is in your past that you're not proud of, if, if we look back and we say, oh, I have no past, I have no sin, then, then it doesn't really make any sense to come to God. But if we look back and we say, hey, I'm not really proud of my past, that, that really is an expression of need for God. So past is really a prerequisite. It's not preventative when it comes to being a Christian. So today, like I said, here's our question. If I have doubts, can I still become a Christian? If I have doubts, can I still become a Christian? And I don't care who you are, where you come from, what your spiritual journey looks like, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're a theist or an atheist or an agnostic, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, no matter what country you come from, whether you're a theologian or an electrician, whether you're a Habs fan or a Leafs fan, all of us have doubt. In fact, if, if you're a Leafs fan, I think doubt is the new mascot, isn't it, for the Leafs? Is that, is that correct? All of us have doubt. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to take a look at a story in the Bible about a guy who is struggling with some really significant and serious doubt. And we're going to let that story and the rest of Scripture speak to uh, the different kinds of doubt that we can experience. Because there are actually different kind of genres and types of doubt. And then most importantly... We're going to take a look at how God responds to doubt and especially how he responds to you and me when we doubt. Sound good? Good. All right, let's pray real quick and then we will open up the word of God together. God, thanks for your presence here. Thanks for Scott and his leadership. God, what you're doing in, in, in uh, Scott and Christina's life and the new uh, baby that they're welcoming soon. God, we're just, uh, we celebrate with them and we're grateful for his service here and his friendship to Bayview Glen. 
God, we open up your word now, and we ask that you would speak to us, Spirit of God, that you would convict and uphold and renew and restore, that you would remind those of us who doubt, and that's all of us, God, that you're near to us, that you walk with us, and that you love us even in the midst of doubt. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture is up here on the screen. You can also use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use your device. You can look on with your neighbor, whatever that you, whatever you need to do to get the text in front of you. And I'd love for you to have the text in front of you. And again, Bible or the scripture is always up here on the screen. The Bible is, is a collection of 66 different books, and four of those books are biographies of the life of Jesus. And each of those biographies of the life of Jesus is called a gospel, and each of those gospels is named after the guy who wrote them. So the book of Matthew was written by a guy named Matthew. The book of John was written by a guy named John. So the book of Mark is Mark's account of the life of Jesus. It's Mark's biography of the life of Jesus. That's where we'll be this morning. And we're going to spend our time in, in Mark chapter 9. And I want you to know that Mark chapter 9 begins with this moment called the transfiguration. Some of you know what that is. For those of you who don't, there's this moment where Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. And for lack of a better term here, it's just, just a way to kind of explain and understand what's happening here. Jesus kind of peels back his humanity and exposes his divinity in its entirety on this mountain to Peter, James, and John. And as they descend the mountain, they come back down the mountain, Peter, James, John, and Jesus find the rest of the disciples engaged in an argument with the religious leaders of the day. That's where we pick up our story in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Here's what happens. It says, when they, that's Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they descended the mountain after the transfiguration, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes, that's religious professionals, that's unfortunately people like me, but that's beside the point, arguing with them, verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, Rabbi, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Stop there. Look up at me. If I told you that there was a child in, in our you know, children's ministry here, or my child or something, was experiencing these symptoms convulsions, uh, muscles going rigid, foaming at the mouth, grinding the teeth, unable to walk, unable to speak. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a seizure to me, right? Sounds like a seizure. But both Mark's account and Jesus himself are far more interested at the source of the seizure that this child is experiencing. And Mark claims that the root cause of the symptoms that this child is experiencing is spiritual. It says that the root cause of these epileptic seizures is spiritual. So let me just two caveats real quick. First, does the Bible teach that the cause of all seizures is spiritual? No. Absolutely not. Everybody hear me saying that? No. 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 
Not even close. See, this is where crazy Christians kind of get messed up a little bit because they read stuff like this and they conclude that the root cause of any physical ailment, whether it be seizure or clinical depression or cancer, is always a spiritual thing. And they stop taking their medication and they try to cast out the cancer demon. That's not even close to biblical teaching. So here's the deal. If you're on meds, please keep taking them. And Christians, stop telling people that they're sick because they don't have enough faith or they don't pray enough. That's dangerous, and it's anti-biblical, and it's pretty messed up, beside the point. Caveat number two. Some of you might err on the other side and say that there's nothing spiritual going on, that there's no way that something spiritual could be causing this child's seizures. But according to the Epilepsy Foundation that does all this research about what happens in the course of a seizure, uh, would say that epileptic seizures are often caused by stress, anxiety, internal turmoil, and angst. I have personally watched this happen in my own life. Some of you have maybe even watched it happen in your own life where somebody is experiencing PTSD or high levels of anxiety or stress, and it causes a seizure. So the notion that a spiritual presence is causing this young man to have seizures is a reasonable conclusion based on modern epilepsy research. Let's just take the Bible out of it for a minute and say that is a, that is a reasonable conclusion just based on modern medicine. And perhaps you disagree with me, and that's okay. If you disagree with me, that's okay. But for me, based on both A, the reliability of the scripture, and B, the fact that it lines up with modern medicine, I am of the opinion that an evil spirit is the root cause of this child's seizures here. That's my opinion. That's how I read the text, and it lines up with modern medicine. Keep reading, verse 19. It says, and he, that's Jesus, answered them, and we'll talk about who that them is in a minute. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, that's the child, to me. Stop there. In his rebuke, Jesus is addressing a first kind, a first type or genre of doubt. And we're going to call this type of doubt volitional doubt. Volitional doubt. If you don't know what volition means, it just means choice or, or an act of the will. This is doubt that the religious leaders are experiencing. They're doubting Jesus, and it's a willful, deliberate choice to doubt the power of God as it's displayed in Christ. So this, this is volitional doubt. This is a picture of volitional doubt. Have you ever told someone something about yourself or, or something that you did, or you told them a statistic or something? It was probably made up anyway, but because like 58% of statistics are made up on the spot. Did you know that? You see what I just did there? I made up a statistic. It's crazy. It's like inception, dream within a dream. It's nuts. Beside the point. Point is this. You ever tell somebody something and they kind of cross their arms and look at you and go, I doubt it. I doubt it. You know, it's not real doubt. It's not honest doubt. They're just rejecting what you're telling them. This, this is what the uh, religious leaders are experiencing when Jesus calls them a faithless generation. But I want to rewind a little bit and get kind of the full-orbed picture of this volitional doubt that they're experiencing. Listen close now. In the first eight chapters of Mark, the eight chapters that precede chapter nine, this is what happens. Jesus has healed a leper He's made a man lame from birth walk. He's healed a deaf man, and he's healed a man with a withered hand. 
He calmed a storm. He fed thousands of people with a sack lunch. He walked on water and even raised a little girl from the dead. And that's just in the first eight chapters. In other words, by this time, the religious leaders have ample evidence for who Jesus is. However, in Mark 8, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say this. They they begin to argue with him. And they seek a sign from heaven from him to test him. That's in the chapter right before this rebuke. So despite the evidence to the contrary, the religious leaders continue to test Jesus. They continue to argue with Jesus. They're not honestly seeking him with real doubts. They're trying to test him and say, can you juggle swords or something to prove to us that you're the Messiah? Do a trick. They've made a choice to doubt Jesus. They've crossed their arms, snubbed their noses, and snarled back at him. I doubt it. This is volitional doubt. And watch how Jesus responds to their volitional doubt. Still in Mark 8, the chapter before we're talking about this morning, verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So here's how Jesus is responding to volitional doubt. He's telling the religious leaders, I know your doubt isn't real. It's just rejection disguised as doubt. So don't expect God to make himself known to you in the midst of your rejection disguised as doubt. So back to our story in Mark chapter 9. The rebuke in our story in Mark chapter 9 comes on the heels of that conversation in Mark 8 when Jesus says, look, if you're experiencing volitional doubt, don't expect a sign. God doesn't enter in into the midst of that. And so in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus rebukes them, he calls them a faithless generation. Bible scholars point out that when Jesus rebukes his listeners in our story, it's not a general rebuke, kind of a blanket rebuke for everybody who's listening. It's a specific rebuke for those hypocritical religious leaders who've made a choice to reject Jesus. So in other words, for those with volitional doubt, no matter how much we tell ourselves it's honest doubt, we should not expect that God would reveal himself to us because we've simply rejected him and tried to disguise it with doubt. Same principle shows up in James chapter 1, actually. James writes this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's up here on the screen, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Here we go. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This word doubt in the book of James is, is a different Greek word than the one Mark is using in Mark chapter 9 for unbelief. The word Mark uses in, for uh, unbelief in Mark 9 is apistis, and, and this word here that James uses is diacrino. It, it, the word literally means to put asunder or to separate. That's the root word for this word doubt that James is using in James chapter 1. So James is saying, some of you have actually chosen to doubt, diacrino. You have chosen to reject God, to separate yourself from him, to put yourself asunder from him, to, to create a rift between you and him. And to those who are experiencing that kind of doubt, look what James says. He says, for that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's what this means. What's true for the hypocritical religious leaders in Mark chapter 8 and 9 
who demand a sign is true for the church that James is talking to in James chapter 1, and it's true for you and me today. You may try to disguise your rejection of Jesus as doubt, but it's still your choice. You may try to cloak it all you want, but it's still volitional doubt. And if that's you, please don't expect that God would show up. As James would say, that man should not think he should receive anything from the Lord. As Jesus would say in Mark 8, you're not going to get a sign. As Jesus would say in Mark 9, faithless generation, you've chosen to reject me. Now, I heard it said before that Jesus is a gentleman, so he'll knock, but he won't barge in. I think that saying is a little cheesy, to be honest with you. And I think it's got some theological problems with it, but that's beside the point. The point is, the core principle holds true. If your doubt is simply a disguise for rejection, don't expect God to barge in. Now, I can't tell you whether or not your doubts about God and faith are legitimate. If they are legitimate doubts, if they're honest doubts, we're going to talk about those shortly. But before we move on, a quick exhortation to those who may be experiencing volitional doubt. Here's the exhortation. Be ruthless with the motive behind your doubt. Be ruthless with the motive behind your doubt. Perhaps you realize that if God exists, if the God of the Bible exists, then he has full authority over my life. And I don't want to give it up to him, so I doubt his existence. That's not real doubt. That's rejection disguised as doubt. Perhaps you, Christians, have experienced a clear calling from God to international missions or a conviction to break up with that loser that you're dating or to give generously or to serve your community or whatever it is. But what God is calling you to do feels like too big a sacrifice. It feels like too big a deal. You don't want to give it up, so you say, you know what? I really doubt that's the voice of God. That's not doubt. That's rejection disguised as doubt. It's volitional doubt. I can't tell you for sure what your doubt is. If it's real doubt or if it's volitional doubt, if it's just rejection disguised as doubt, I, I, I don't know. That's between you and God. That's why my exhortation is be ruthless with the motive behind your doubt. Seek it out. Ask difficult questions and be sure that your doubt is not rejection in disguise. But here, here's the deal. Most of us have really legitimate doubts, don't we? This is not the case for, for most of us. Rejection disguised as doubt. We just struggle with belief sometimes. And for those of you who find yourself in that place, in that space, let's, let's learn a little bit more from this little boy's father, shall we? Verse 20, keep reading. Here we go, verse 20. It says, they brought the boy to him, that's Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse, tw verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Listen close. Here's our first expression of doubt. But he, this, this man says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, do you hear it? There's doubt. If, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to know that, that in the original language, there is that high pitch there. That does happen. Jesus does that in the Greek, okay? If you can, he says, if, if, if all things are possible for one who believes, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, listen to our second expression of doubt here, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't you love that? That's such an honest prayer, isn't it? Such an honest expression of where he said, look, I believe, but help my unbelief. You ever pray those kinds of prayers? I believe, help my unbelief. Or I want to do the right thing. You ever pray, I want, I want to do the right thing. And then you go, you know what? You know, this was really more accurate. I want to want to do the right thing. You ever pray those prayers? It's the same kind of thing. It's a very honest prayer. And this is a totally different kind of doubt than volitional doubt, isn't it? This is a totally different kind of doubt. This isn't doubt disguised as, re- or rejection disguised as doubt. This man is authentically struggling. It's what I'd call honest doubt. He's experiencing very honest, authentic, genuine doubt. He's struggling to believe. And honest doubt can take on all different kinds of forms. Honest doubt might be intellectual. This is when there's kind of an intellectual barrier between, belie- between you and believing what God says about himself. So maybe your honest intellectual doubt is related to the relationship between faith and science. Maybe it's related to the historical accuracy of the Bible. Maybe it's related to the existence of God in general. But it's honest intellectual doubt. Uh, perhaps your doubt is circumstantial doubt. Perhaps it's, it's a circumstance that you've been through in your life that causes you to doubt God. I find this is the case for a lot of folks who grew up around church because they know a hypocritical Christian or, or they've been to a very unwelcoming, dysfunctional church. And those experiences, those circumstances have caused them to experience honest, authentic doubt. Or perhaps your doubt, your honest doubt is, is emotional. Perhaps there's an emotional barrier between you and believing what God says about himself. Maybe, maybe the emotional uh, wound or difficulty comes from having a sick child, just like this man does in Mark 9. Maybe your child never got better. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've had a marriage dissolve. Maybe you've experienced debilitating depression like I have. Maybe you've struggled with some of the same health issues that Scott has. In any case, emotional wounds can be the foundation for very honest doubt. In this particular man's case, in in Mark chapter 9, even though Jesus assures him all things are possible for one who believes, and he's got ample evidence that Jesus can come through. Remember, Mark chapters 1 through 8 and all those miracles that we talked about, that's already happened. It's not been written down yet, but this man might have experienced some of them. He certainly would have heard of some of them. That's why he brings this child to Jesus. But there is still an intellectual, circumstantial, or emotional barrier between him and believing what Jesus is claiming. Again, here's my hunch is that for most of us, both Christians and non-Christians, no matter where you come from, honest doubt is what we experience most, isn't it? Like we're not actively rejecting God. We just struggle with belief. We have honest doubts. We doubt God's existence. We doubt he hears our prayers. We doubt our salvation. Anybody else ever experienced that? When you're laying in bed at night, you're like, yeah, I'm not quite sure I'm totally saved, so I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart one more time. Anybody else? Good, just the pastor. Perfect. That's, that's great. It's great. It's amazing. Thank you for being my family of faith and rallying around me in my moment of doubt. 
We doubt that Jesus was real. We doubt that he rose from the dead. We doubt God has a plan for us. We doubt that God can work all things for good. We doubt that Jesus is the only way to God. We doubt heaven. We doubt that God is really in control of all things in a chaotic world. We doubt that God's rules are best for us. And that's just to name a few. We have honest doubt. What I can't do this morning is address each one of those doubts specifically. We just don't have the time, do we? But what I can do is take a couple of cues from this example of a man with honest doubt in Mark chapter 9 to help you deal with those honest doubts that you might be experiencing. So here we go. Principle number one for dealing with those honest doubts from this man's example in Mark chapter 9. You ready for it? It's going to blow your mind. Here we go. Doubt is normal. Doubt is normal. Like... As, as, as a friend of mine would say, if you're experiencing doubt as a Christian or a non-Christian when it comes to things of faith, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to God, welcome to a bad case of the normals. This is just normal, standard operating procedure. Doubt is a very normal thing to experience. Notice that when this man expresses his doubt to Jesus, Jesus does not rebuke him like he does the religious leaders. Do you get that? Jesus rebuked the religious leaders. He called them a faithless generation. But when this man comes and says, I believe, help my unbelief, if you can do anything, Jesus does not rebuke him. Why? Because Jesus knows that doubt is a normal experience. He doesn't look at this man and go, doubt? If? Seriously, you're a weirdo. I mean, we've got all this stuff in Mark 1 through 8, all these things I've ever done. What in the world are you experiencing doubt for? I've proven who I am. You need to get over this faithless stuff. That's not how he treats this man. Because this man comes with just an honest expression of doubt. And that's a very normal experience. And it's fascinating to me because we fooled ourselves into believing that true Christians never doubt. Especially the church, we fooled ourselves into believing that that's what a true Christian is. Someone who never doubts. What a dangerous lie from the pit of hell. That a true Christian never doubts. Some of the most prominent Christ followers in the world have written extensively about their own doubt. Let me name a few for you. Mother Teresa, she frequently wrote of loneliness, not hearing from God, personal hypocrisy, and doubts about her own faith. She wrote this, and I quote, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. Mother Teresa. Martin Luther He's a great reformer, one of my favorites. He even doubted his salvation at times. So at least I find a friend in Luther, even though none of you came to my aid. At least I find a friend in Luther. He considered doubt such a normal Christian experience that he wrote this. Only God and certain madmen have no doubts. I love that one. One of my favorite preachers, a guy named Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they called him the prince of preachers, spoke openly of doubt, especially as it came to him in the midst of his own depression. Spurgeon believed that doubt was so normative in the life of a believer. Spurgeon wrote this, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It's quite time for us to begin to say, ah, oh, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all. I love that. Even the authors of Scripture express doubt. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 44. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? 
Jude 1, 22 assumes that there will be doubt among Christians. Jude says this, have mercy, be gracious to those who doubt. There will be those who doubt, but be merciful towards them. It's all over scripture. The scripture tells us that doubt is a very normal experience. And Christianity through the centuries has communicated and told us and affirmed for us that doubt is a very normal experience. So here's what this means for you and me. I know that you have doubt at times. You know that you have doubt at times. You know I have doubt at times. I know I have doubt at times. So now that we all know that we all have doubt, let's just get over this whole game of my faith isn't shaken thing. Okay? Let's just leave that game behind and start getting honest about our doubts. Start talking to God a little bit about our doubts. Start talking to one another a little bit about our doubts. Christian or not, we all experience doubt. It's very normal, so let's not shrink back from talking about it. All right, principle number two that we can grab from this man's experience in Mark 9 for dealing with doubt. Ready? Doubt's a great employee, but a horrible boss. I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that, but stick with me. Doubt is a great employee but a really, really horrible boss. People who allow doubt to boss them around, to control them, attempt to deal with it on their own. So what this looks like is they attempt to muster up more faith in order to overcome doubt, or they try to suppress doubt, or they try to ignore doubt and act like they're not experiencing experiencing it at all. What they try to do is deal with it on their own, so they refuse to bring it to God and let him deal with it. But all of those tactics don't work. If you've tried them, you know. So eventually, what's going to happen is that your doubt is going to become far more than your boss. Your doubt will own you. It will master you. You will be crippled by doubt, consumed by doubt, and controlled by doubt. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Tim Keller, uh, talks about how destructive it can be when we let doubt boss us around. He writes this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves either A, defenseless, or find themselves defenseless against either A, the experience of tragedy, or B, the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. In other words, if you try to squash or ignore your doubts, the minute you experience difficulty or someone asks you questions about what you believe that you cannot answer, you'll find your faith collapsing in an instant because you, you've never been honest about your doubts. If you give doubt an inch, it will take a mile. Let it be your boss, and it will eventually master you. Try to ignore it, suppress it, or muster up enough faith to deal with it, and it will eventually rule you, collapse you, and deconstruct your faith. But even though doubt is a horrible boss, doubt's a great employee. Because if you put your doubt to work for you, what you'll see is great reward. Take our friend in Mark 9, for example. 
rather than attempting to ignore his doubt or suppress his doubt or muster up enough faith to conquer his doubt, rather than sitting in his house and going, I don't know if Jesus can heal my son. I don't know if Jesus can heal my son. And until I'm over it, I'm not going to come to him. This man puts his doubt to work for himself. Rather than letting his doubt rule him, his doubt works for him in that it drives him to the feet of Jesus. I want to say that one more time. Rather than letting his doubt rule him, master him, or boss him around, his doubt works for him and that it drives him to the feet of Jesus. It's almost as if you can hear this man in his own home doubting the power of God, doubting that Jesus can, could he really do this, if he could really do this. I believe, but ah, I don't believe, but ah, struggling with my doubt. You can almost hear him say to his own doubts what I say to Amy sometimes, you are not the boss of me. And let me tell you something that works a lot better for this man than it does for me. And instead of letting his doubt boss him around and control him and master him, he puts his doubt to work. He says, I've got doubts. I'm just going to let it drive me to the feet of Jesus. So my exhortation to you this morning is follow this man's example. Do not let your doubts boss you around. Rather, put your doubt to work. Make your doubt serve you. Because if your doubt works for you, it can lead you to faith just like it did for our friend in Mark 9. Doubts can be the question for dealing with and answering some very difficult questions. Doubts can be the lens through which you see God's miracles all around you. Doubts can be the grain of sand in the oyster that becomes the pearl of faith. But that happens if and only if you follow this man's example and refuse to let your doubt boss you around. Put your doubt to work. C.S. Lewis, who we quote often in here, said this, If ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what was clearly not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, if we put our doubt to work for us, Lewis says, our faith has grown stronger. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. Those who let doubt boss them around find themselves exhausted and exasperated. But those who put their doubt to work, as C.S. Lewis said, enjoy God more deeply. So here's the deal. Here's how to put your doubt to work for you. Pray about your doubts specifically. Read the Bible. Read what the Bible says about your doubt. Read other authors who have struggled with doubt in the same way that you have. Listen to biblical preaching about doubt. Be honest with God about your doubt. Don't let your doubt master you and try to ignore it or squash it. But let your doubt serve you, put it to work for you, and let it drive you to the feet of Jesus. All right, let's finish our story. Let's finish our story. Look at verse 25. Here we go. One more principle about dealing with doubt. It says, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it, the spirit, came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. This is my favorite part of this story. This is my favorite part of this story because Jesus responds to the poverty of doubt with the riches of grace. Jesus responds to the poverty of doubt with the riches of grace. Listen closely. 
Jesus does not heal this boy because of the father's faith. The father is struggling with his faith. Jesus heals this boy in spite of the father's doubt. And most of us get this backwards. Church people and non-church people, we get this backwards all the time. We think that the people with the most faith get the most out of God, don't we? But, th- but that, that doesn't square with this passage. It doesn't make sense in the context of Mark chapter 9. Because this father's plea for help was at the very same time a confession of doubt. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. If you can do it. He's struggling with doubt. But Jesus healed anyway. Why? Why? How does this self-admittedly doubting man move Jesus so much that that Jesus heals this boy? Because the father cries out for help. That's why. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his struggling, he cries out for help. It's a raw, honest cry. It's a confessional cry. It's even a doubting cry, but it's still a cry. Did you know that? Did you know that it's not the content of your cry, but the fact that you cry at all that causes Jesus to move? It's not about saying the right words or having all the answers. It's certainly not about drawing near to God with no doubt at all. It's just about drawing near. Because look, if, if God's revelation of himself were completely dependent on our faith, if God only revealed himself to us in the measure of faith that we've got, none of us would have any clue as to who God is. You know why? Because none of us have a pure faith. We always have doubts. But the movement of God, in this case, 2,000 years ago, the movement of Jesus was not contingent upon this man's faith, the quantity or quality of it. He is struggling with doubt. The movement of God is entirely dependent on the riches of his grace. He's shown you and me favor that we did not deserve, kindness that we did not earn, Same thing in the case of this man. Even in the midst of the poverty of his doubt, Jesus responds with the riches of grace. Now, that's a good God. This isn't in my notes, and I I did it in the first service because I had extra time, and I'm going to do it in the second service because I have extra time too. I want to show you my favorite Bible passage on doubt. You ready? Matthew chapter 28. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. If not, it's okay. I'll read read it for you. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 uh, uh, takes place after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection. He appears to more than 500 witnesses over the course of 40 days. He gathers his 11 disciples because Judas is long gone by this point. He gathers his 11 disciples on a mountain just before he's about to ascend into heaven. And here's what Matthew chapter 28 verse 16 says. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Man, I love that. First of all, first of all, look at verse 16. Who's there? Now the 11 disciples. We got 11 dudes that walked around watching Jesus do all the stuff we just talked about him doing in Mark chapter 8. We got 11 guys that saw him dead as a doornail, buried in a tomb, and on Sunday rose from the dead. 
We got one guy, at least, probably more, that actually put his hands in the nail scars, put his finger, touched his side where he'd been pierced, and they worshiped him. And we talked about this. We talked about who is Jesus. Of course, Jesus receives their worship. Only God is worthy of worship. Jesus receives it because he is what? God. But when they doubted, does Jesus look at them and go, Man, you guys are messed up. It's been three years. How could I use a bunch of rapscallions like you? You guys are messed up. You're still doubting. You're, st you're still doubting I, I can do this. You're still doubting I've got power. You're still doubting I'm God. You see me raise people from the dead. You saw the blind man see thing. You saw uh, all this different stuff. And now, now I was dead and now I'm here. And in about 10 seconds, I'm going to ascend into heaven. And that's going to be radical too. And you're still doubting. Man, I've had it with you guys. Does Jesus say that? No. Look at what he says in verse 18. Jesus came and said what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, Father, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Two notes from this passage. Hopefully change your life. Doubters. Number one. Jesus welcomes doubters. You think, you think he didn't know his disciples were struggling with faithlessness at this point? You think he didn't? He's God. He knows everything. You think he didn't know? Of course he knew. Of course he knew. And he welcomed both worship and doubt in the same moment. You know God's shoulders are big enough to shoulder your doubt? You know, he doesn't panic when you communicate doubt to you. God, I'm struggling with doubt. He doesn't go, What? What? He welcomes that. Just like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 28. And, and watch this. Watch this. A gracious God would welcome doubters. But, but, a, but a radically, unrelentingly gracious God would send doubters out into the world to be his hands and feet. And that's what Jesus does. See, we think, oh man, Gosh, God still loves me even in spite of my doubt. God still welcomes me even in spite of my doubt. Man, that's pretty cool. And God says, yeah, 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 but, but I've got grace beyond what you could even imagine. So I'm not even, I'm not just going to love you in the midst of your doubt. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age in the midst of your doubt. I'm even going to send you out to do the kingdom restoration of God, to do the kingdom work of God around the world and in this great city of Toronto and to the disciples, Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Could you, I mean, that's just radical grace. Can you think of that? Can you imagine it? Can you picture it? That's just, that's just beyond our ability to comprehend that even in the midst of our doubt, Jesus welcomes us. He's with us. He says it's a normal experience. Put your doubt to work for you. He doesn't respond to the poverty of our doubt, but with the riches of his grace. And then he sends doubters out into the world to do his work. That's power. That's grace. Here's my short answer to our question today. Uh, the long answer was the last 45 minutes. The short answer is this. Um, if I have doubts, can I still become a Christian? If the answer to that question is no, then 11 disciples who stood at the Great Commission were not Christians. <laughs> Welcome to the club, doubters. Glad to have you. Jesus is too. 
we're going to sing a song that probably is familiar to you. The band's going to come back up and lead us in a, in a closing hymn. It's called Amazing Grace. Um, most of you know it, I would assume. And uh, my encouragement to you this morning, my invitation to you this morning is we sometimes sing this song in light of our past. We sometimes sing this song in light of our present. Maybe we could sing this song this morning in, in, in light of our doubts. Can we do that? And say, even in the midst of my doubt, no matter what that doubt is, God still has amazing grace for me, so amazing that he even sends me out in the world to partner with him and do his kingdom work. Let's stand and sing together.